Welcome to History Sleuth, a podcast exploring the involvement of history and culture in current events. My name is Adelaide, and today we are jumping into our second episode of Black History Month, where we're going to learn about several of the important people and events in American history that you might have missed in our general education that focuses pretty much only on the history of white people. But before we get into that, if you're on Twitter, follow me at Sleuth History to get updates about when I post new episodes, and make sure also to follow History Sleuth on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. So for Black History Month, I'm going to do twice as many episodes posting both on Tuesday and Thursday, so you're going to want to make sure you get connected so you don't miss anything. Now, let's jump into some Black history. Like I said before in my first episode on on Black history, I'm going to focus more about more on American history just to kind of like <laughs> center myself and give me some boundaries because there's a lot uh, of Black history that we can talk about. And actually, I'll mention this again at the end, but... The featured Black History podcast of this episode is a, a podcast called It's a Continent that focuses only on the various nations in Africa and their histories. And so there's definitely a lot of different directions that you can go with this, but I'm going to continue to talk about Black history in America. So um, the first thing, usually the, where, where people say that the starting point of Black history in America would be um, when slavery first came to America in 1619. And from uh, history.com, article on Black History Highlight. This article says, to satisfy the, the labor needs of the rapidly growing North American colonies, white European settlers turned in the early 17th century from indentured servants, mostly poor Europeans, to a cheaper, more plentiful labor source, enslaved Africans. After 1619, when a Dutch ship brought 20 Africans ashore at the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia, slavery quickly spread throughout the American colonies. Though it is impossible to give accurate figures, some historians have estimated that 6 to 7 million enslaved people were imported to the Americas during the 18th century alone. Um, By the end of the 18th century, many northern states had abolished slavery, but the institution was vital to the South, where black people constituted a large minority of the population and the economy relied on the production of crops like tobacco and cotton. Congress outlawed the import of new enslaved people in 1808, but the enslaved population in the U.S. nearly tripled over the next 50 years, and by 1860 it had reached nearly 4 million, with more than half living in the cotton-producing states of the South. So this is kind of where we're, we're starting from, where we're um, going to move from, and, and a, a difficult but important thing to understand about American history, and you'll notice um, the 1619 Project is named after this date um, and focuses on on this topic as well, but we're not going to talk about the 1619 Project now from the New York Times, because <laughs> I have extensively on this podcast already, and we're going to come back to it again later, believe it or not. Um, one of the first important people that I wanted to bring your attention to um, is Phyllis Wheatley Peters. She was actually the first African-American author of a published book of poetry. Yes, so she was uh, born in West Africa, though her birthplace was not documented. Um, scholars think she was born in 1753, um, most likely in present-day Gambia or Senegal. Peters was sold into slavery at the age of seven or eight and then transported to North America. She was enslaved by the Wheatley family of Boston. After she learned to read and write, they encouraged her poetry when they saw her talent and provided her um, a pretty amazing education, definitely for an enslaved person at this time, but even for um, um, a woman. A 1773 trip to London with her master's son, um, seeking publication of her work, Peters met prominent people who became patrons. The publication in London of her book Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, on September 1st, 1773, brought her fame both in England and the American colonies. Figures such as George Washington praised her work. A few years later, African-American poet Jupiter Hammond praised her work in a poem of his own. Peters was emancipated by her masters shortly after the publication of her book. 
They soon died, and she married poor grocer John Peters, had three children but lost them, and died in poverty and obscurity at the age of 31. So I want to read you one of her poems. I'm not the best like poetry reader, so this might not be the best reading you've ever heard, but her writing is, is very beautiful, and she's a figure that people have only recently, more recently, started paying more attention to, and so I'd love for her to become a more regular part of, of Black history and American history, a more studied figure. So here's one of her poems, A Hymn to the Evening. Soon as the sun forsook the eastern main, the peeling thunder shook the heavenly plain. Majestic grandeur from the zephyr's wing exhales the incense of the blooming spring. Soft pearl the streams, the birds renew their notes, and through the air the, their mingled music floats. Through all the heavens what beauteous dyes are spread, but the west glories in the deepest red. So may our breasts with every virtue glow, the living temples of our God below. Filled with the praise of him who gives the light and draws the sable curtains of the night, let placid slumbers soothe every weary mind at morn to wake more heavenly, more refined. So shall the labors of the day begin, more pure, more guarded from the snares of sin. Night's leaden scepter seals my drowsy eyes, then cease my song till fair aurora rise. So there's Phyllis Wheatley Peters. We're kind of zooming through things because this is only page two of my notes out of 20 pages. <laughs> so we're going to move on to Nat Turner's revolt in 1831. So in August 1831, Nat Turner led the only effective slave rebellion in U.S. history. Earlier that year, Turner took a solar eclipse as a sign that the time for revolution was near. And on the night of August 21st, he and a small band of followers killed um, the people who were enslaving him, the Travis family, and set off towards the town of Jerusalem, where they planned to capture an armory and gather more recruits. The group, which eventually numbered around 75 black people, killed some 60 white people in two days before armed resistance from local white people and the arrival of state militia forces over overwhelmed them, some 100 enslaved people, including innocent bystanders, lost their lives in the struggle. Turner escaped and spent six weeks on the run before he was captured, tried, and hanged. Oft exaggerated reports of the insurrection, some said that hundreds of white people had been killed, sparked a wave of anxiety across the South. Several states called special emergency sessions of the legislature, and most strengthened their codes in order to limit the education, movement, and assembly of enslaved people. While supporters of slavery pointed to the Turner Rebellion as evidence requiring slavery to discipline them, the increased repression of Southern Black people would strengthen the anti-slavery feeling in the North through the 1860s and intensify regional tensions building toward the Civil War. So this, I think, this event is an interesting point um, in Black history that, that I think we'll see as we look at other major events in Black history in America throughout this episode and, and in other episodes. We have to handle these things understanding the complexities of, of the people and the situations involved, and also understanding that we can't take one or two Black historical figures and have them represent all all black people are all all people throughout history. We can't we can't do that with anybody really, but I think especially sometimes people will boil black history down to just a, a few people. But as we'll see as I, I continue, there's a variety of opinions and ideas and strategies taken by abolitionists and civil rights leaders and all sorts of all sorts of other groups and instances in in black history. And so while some other episodes of black history and my podcast and other podcasts will focus on celebrating black excellence and and the work of black people right now we're just kind of going through generally focusing on the narrative of the history of black people throughout the United States and so that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to celebrate every single part of it but we need to understand the narrative arc the struggle um so we can better 
celebrate the successes and things that we have today, the fact that slavery is not an institution that we still have today. Um, we need to recognize the different complexities of, of the history of dehumanizing and enslaving a whole group of people. But also, too, we don't want to turn Black history only into the story of slavery and abolitionism and civil rights, um, because there is more to Black history than those things, um, though those things do play a, a large role in it. So that's kind of why I wanted to <laughs> stop and specify that, though I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the institution of slavery and abolitionism and civil rights. That's not all there is to black history and there there's more to, to celebrate there. So hopefully we'll be able to get into those things more in depth in some of the other episodes, but um, I just kind of wanted to put that out there for this one too, because that'll be a, a recurring theme as we keep going. So the next major um, event in black history that I wanted to talk about was the Underground Railroad, which again, reading from history.com, uh, they described the Underground Railroad as a movement in North America that was fueled both by enslaved people's efforts to liberate themselves and by groups of white settlers, such as the Quakers, who opposed slavery on religious or moral grounds. In the early 19th century, a brand, a new brand of radical abolitionism emerged in the North, partly in reaction to Congress's passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1793 and the tightening codes in most Southern states. Anti-slavery northerners, many of them free black people, had begun helping enslaved people escape from southern plantations to the north via a loose network of safe houses as early as the 1700s called the Underground Railroad. And of course, we can't talk about the Underground Railroad without talking about Harriet Tubman. So um, just from the Wikipedia page on Harriet Tubman to give you a good overview of her, Harriet Tubman was an American abolitionist and political activist. Born into slavery, Tubman escaped and subsequently made some 13 missions to rescue approximately 70 enslaved people, including family and friends, using the network of anti-slavery activists and safe houses known as the Underground Railroad. During the American Civil War, she served as an armed scout and spy for the Union Army. In her later years, Tubman Tubman was an activist in the movement for women's suffrage. In 1849, Tubman escaped to Philadelphia, only to return to Maryland to rescue her family soon after. Slowly, one group at a time, she brought relatives with her out of the state and eventually guided dozens of other enslaved people to freedom. Traveling by night and in extreme secrecy, Tubman, quote, never lost a passenger. After the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed, she helped guide fugitives farther into British North America, which would be Canada, and helped newly freed enslaved people to find work. Tubman met John Brown in 1858 and helped him plan and recruit supporters for his 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry, which we will come back to in a little bit. When the Civil War began, Tubman worked for the Union Army, first as a cook and a nurse, and then as an armed scout and a spy. The first woman to lead an armed expedition to war, she guided the raid at Combahee Ferry, which liberated more than 700 enslaved people. After the war, she retired to the family home on property she had purchased in 1859 in Auburn, New York, where she cared for her aging parents. She was active in the women's suffrage movement until illness overtook her, and she had to be admitted into a home for elderly African Americans that she helped to establish years earlier. After her death in 1913, she became an icon of courage and freedom. Yeah, there were a lot of things about um, Harriet Tubman in, in there that I didn't know um, or I didn't learn in, in school or growing up, even though like I knew who she was and I just mostly knew about her um, and the, the Underground Railroad, not all of the other things that, that she had done and, and worked for. And so I would love to research more on her and spend more time on her. So the next moment in Black history that I wanted to focus on was the Dred Scott decision. Um, so this was, hopefully you know what this is. <laughs> hopefully your education gave you this one at least. But um, on March 6th, 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision in Scott versus Stanford, delivering a resounding victory to the Southern supporters of slavery. During the 1830s, the owner of an enslaved man named Dred Scott had taken Scott from the slave state of Missouri to Wisconsin and to Illinois, where slavery was outlawed, according to the terms of the Missouri Compromise. 1820. 
Upon his return to Missouri, Scott sued for his freedom on the basis that his temporary removal to free soil had made him legally free. The case went to the Supreme Court, um, where Chief Justice Roger B. Taney and the majority eventually ruled that Scott was an enslaved person and not a citizen, and thus had no legal rights to sue. According to the court, Congress had no constitutional powers to deprive persons of their property rights when dealing with enslaved people in the territories. The verdict effectively declared the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional, ruling that all territories were open to slavery and could exclude it only when it became states. One of the most prominent abolitionists, Frederick Douglass, um, was cautiously optimistic, wisely predicting that, quote, this very attempt to blot out forever the hopes of an enslaved people may be one necessary link in the chain of events preparatory to the complete overthrow of the whole slave system. So the Dred Scott decision was impactful. Um, but for now, we're going to go back to John Brown, who Harriet Tubman had assisted in his raid. So this next event is his raid on Harper's Ferry. So a native of Connecticut, John Brown struggled to support his large family and moved restlessly from state to state throughout his life, becoming a passionate opponent of slavery along the way. This is also from the, the history.com site. I think most of most of my uh, major events are, though some I have like Wikipedia links and other links, um, but they'll, those will all be in the description that so you can look at that and read it yourself too if you would like. Anyway, so John Brown, after assisting the Underground Railroad out of Missouri, Brown grew anxious to strike a more extreme blow for the cause. On the night of October 16th, 1859, he led a small band of less than 50 men in a raid against the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Their aim was to capture enough ammunition to lead a large operation against Virginia slaveholders. Brown's men captured and held the arsenal until federal and state governments sent troops and were able to overpower them. So Brown was eventually captured and, and he was hanged on December 2nd, 1859. His trial riveted the nation, and he emerged as an eloquent voice against the injustice of slavery and a martyr to the abolitionist cause. Just as John Brown's courage turned thousands of previously indifferent Northerners against slavery, his violent actions convinced slave owners in the South beyond doubt that abolitionists would go to any lengths to destroy uh, the institution of slavery. Rumors spread of other planned insurrections, and the South reverted to a semi-war status. I think... John Brown as a, as a person, as an abolitionist, and also his raid on Harper's Ferry is an interesting um, event to, to look at in comparison with how we look at maybe major historical events happening in our own lifetimes or how we talk about and understand um, different moments in, in these past couple of years even. Um, because while John Brown's um, actions were inspiring to abolitionists, and like this article said, led lots of people who were indifferent about slavery to become abolitionists, it also, his actions also worked in the opposite direction and some Southerners became more um, fearful or started sp spreading more just rumors about um, insurrections and violence and argued for for tightening their hold on, on slavery and, and all of that. And so it, it kind of worked in, in both directions, which is unfortunate. Instead of altogether convincing people that slavery was wrong and everyone needed to be an abolitionist or whatever. So I think that happens a lot with, with current events today. Even we can see like when people stormed the Capitol on January 6th. I don't know. Some of us, I feel like I saw that and I was like, Surely, you know, we see that these people are Trump supporters. Surely people will stop supporting Trump once they see that that these are the kind of people, these actions, this violence is is what goes along with it. But then we see Trump supporters trying to distance themselves from, from that or saying that wasn't really them or that it was people in disguised as Trump supporters, all this kind of nonsense. So I think 
when we study history, we we simplify things for just for the sake of communication or whatever, or or just we're trying to tell a larger narrative, and so we don't really get into all the different complexities of all the different situations. And so I think um, this instance is a good example of another again those like complexities that we see and the way that people respond to history and to events and in ways that aren't super straightforward or even logical sometimes. And so I think that can can better help us understand our own current events and and how we get to to where we are is that there just are so many complexities. It's not always so, so straightforward. People don't always interpret it the same or in a way that we think would make sense. So yes. So next we get to the Civil War, the way that history.com brings us into the Civil War, they say in the, the spring of 1861, the bitter sectional conflicts that had been intensifying between the North and the South over the course of four decades erupted into a civil war with 11 Southern states seceding from the Union and forming the Confederate States of America. And then five days after the bloody Union victory at Antietam in September, President Lincoln issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation. On January 1st, 1863, he made it official that enslaved people within any state or designated part of a state in rebellion, quote, shall be then henceforward and forever free. Lincoln justified his decision as a wartime measure, and he did not go so far as to free enslaved people in the border states loyal to the Union, an omission that angered many abolitionists. By freeing some three million enslaved people in the rebel states, the Emancipation Proclamation deprived the Confederacy of the bulk of its labor forces and put international public opinion strongly on the Union side. Some 186,000 black soldiers would join the Union Army by the time the war ended in 1865, and 38,000 lost their lives. The total number of dead at the war's end was 620,000 out of a population of some 35 million, making it the costliest conflict in American history. And just real quick, I wanted to look up how many Americans have died from the coronavirus so far because I had seen some Twitter historians putting out uh, charts and whatnot comparing different um, historical tragedies and, and losses. Okay, so I'll put this link in my description as well. But as of the time I am recording this, there have been 449,966 deaths in the United States because of the coronavirus. So still less than the number that died during the Civil War, um, but it is creeping closer. So just a reminder to wear your mask and social distance so we can get out of this hard season of our of our present. But moving on, so the Emancipation Proclamation was passed in 1863, but to a certain area of the, the country, namely Galveston, Texas, the slaveholders had chosen not to convey this information to the enslaved people that they still were owning. So when those enslaved people discovered that they were free, um, which would be June 19th, 1865, that established the holiday of Juneteenth. And so this is from Juneteenth.com. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, it was on June 19th that the Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. Note that this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official January 1st, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on the Texans due to the minimal number of Union troops to enforce the new executive order. However, with the surrender of General Lee in April of 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment, the forces were finally strong enough to influence and overcome the resistance. Later attempts to explain this two-and-a-half-year delay in the receipt of this important news have yielded several versions that have been handed down through the years. Often told is the story of a messenger who was murdered on his way to Texas with the news of freedom. Another is that the news was deliberately withheld by the enslavers to maintain the labor force on the plantations. And still another is that federal troops actually waited for the slave owners to reap the benefits of one last cotton harvest 
protest before going to Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. All of which, or none of these versions, could be true. Certainly, for some, President Lincoln's authority over the rebellious states was in question. Whatever the reasons, the conditions in Texas remained uh, status quo well beyond what was statutory. So Juneteenth is a holiday that is still celebrated in present day. So um, I think it's important, an important aspect of, of Black history to, to recognize so that we can continue to recognize this holiday and remember our history. So the end of the, the institution of slavery, the end of the Civil War, not mean the end of struggle for freedom for, for Black communities. And that brings us to the Reconstruction Era. So though the Union victory in the Civil War gave some 4 million enslaved people their freedom, significant challenges awaited during the Reconstruction period. The 13th Amendment, adopted in late 1865, officially abolished slavery, but the question of freed Black people's status in the post-war South remained. As white Southerners gradually re-established civil authority in the former Confederate states in 1865 and 1866, they enacted a series of laws known as the Black Codes, which were designed to restrict freed Black people's activity and ensure their availability as a labor force. During Reconstruction, Black Americans won elections to Southern state governments and even to the U.S. Congress. Their growing influence greatly dismayed many white Southerners who felt control slipping ever further away from them. The white protective societies that arose during this period, the largest of which was the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, sought to disenfranchise Black voters by using voter suppression and intimidation, as well as more extreme violence. By 1877, when the last federal soldiers left the South and Reconstruction drew to a close, Black Americans had seen dishearteningly little improvement in their economic and social status, and what political gains they had made had been wiped away by the vigorous efforts of white supremacist forces throughout the region. So I remember, oh, I don't have a link for it, so I don't know that I can include it necessarily in this episode, but I remember in high school when we were talking a little bit about the Reconstruction era and Jim Crow in my U.S. history class, there was this like political cartoon that we looked at that was arguing that lives for Black Americans after the Civil War was actually worse and harder than it had been during slavery, which I thought was a really interesting thing to grapple with. That the institution of slavery was, was definitely an evil thing, definitely good to have been abolished, but the kinds of things that rose up in its wake were just as bad, just as bad if not worse. So I don't really want to spend a ton of time on the Reconstruction Era and Jim Crow. I think in one of my upcoming episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about how people used the, the Bible to argue for and against slavery, and so we'll come back to the Reconstruction Era then. But I wanted to focus more on victories for Black Americans throughout history. Unfortunately, we do have to understand that like why <laughs> why victories were necessary because just because slavery ended doesn't doesn't mean that like everything was totally fine and racism was just gone now people don't switch like that there was still people who had believed that slavery was a valid system validated by these like racist ideas those racist ideas didn't just go away when slavery was abolished so i think that's something important to understand and while i don't want to spend a lot of time on what racism looked like in the South during the Reconstruction era or what it looks like now, um, I do want to make sure that that just we're aware of that um, as we're learning about Black history. So um, the next event that I wanted to talk about was the Supreme Court case Plessy versus Ferguson. So again, from history.com on May 18th, 1896, the Supreme Court issued its verdict in Plessy versus Ferguson, a case that represented the first major test of the meaning of the 14th Amendment's provision of full and equal citizenship 
to African-Americans. So the 14th Amendment was passed during um, what's called the Reconstruction Era, as we were just talking about, um, and is supposed to kind of expand on what citizenship means for Black Americans. So by an 8-to-1 majority, the court upheld a Louisiana law that required the segregation of passengers on railroad cars by asserting that the Equal Protection Clause was not violated as long as reasonably equal conditions were provided to both groups. The court established the, quote, separate but equal doctrine that would thereafter be used for assessing the constitutionality of racial segregation laws. Plessy versus Ferguson stood as the overriding judicial precedent in civil rights cases until 1954, when it was reversed by the court's verdict in Brown versus Board of Education. So we'll we'll come back to um, that Supreme Court case, but that's definitely important to understand um, that Plessy versus Ferguson is what established the idea that you could have um, separate areas for um, Black Americans than white Americans, and that was constitutional because those different spaces were supposedly equal, though, of course, as it's easy to understand or to <laughs> see how this played out, that's not necessarily what happened. I doubt that it was ever really equal, um, but it certainly was separate. So next, I wanted to touch on a few major Black historical figures. So we've got Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, and um, W.E.B. Du Bois. So first for Booker T. Washington, he was an American educator, author, orator, and advisor to multiple presidents of the United States. Between 1890 and 1915, Washington was the dominant leader in the African-American community and the contemporary Black elite. Washington was from the last generation of Black American leaders born into slavery and became the leading voice of the former slaves and their descendants. They were newly oppressed in the South by disenfranchisement and the Jim Crow discriminatory laws enacted in post-Reconstruction Southern states in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So a lot of Booker T. Washington's writings and ideas were pretty influential, both in his time period and in the time following. George Washington Carver, and these uh, snippets of their lives are from Wikipedia, um, and these these links will be in my description as well. So George Washington Carver was an American agricultural scientist and inventor who promoted alternative crops to cotton and methods to prevent soil depletion. He was the most prominent black scientist of the early 20th century. Apart from his work to improve the lives of farmers, Carver was also a leader in promoting environmentalism. He received numerous honors for his work, including the Spingarton Medal of the NAACP. In an era of high racial polarization, his fame reached beyond the black community. He was widely recognized and praised in the white community for his many achievements and talents. And then the last person I wanted to touch on is W.E.B. Du Bois. He, we will definitely be talking about him again in a couple of episodes I'll do on the Harlem Renaissance, but just so you're aware, he was an American sociologist, socialist, historian, civil rights activist, pan-Africanist, author, writer, and editor. Born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, Du Bois grew up in a relatively tolerant and integrated community, and after completing graduate work at the University of Berlin and Harvard, where he was the first African-American to earn a doctorate, he became a professor of history, sociology, and economics at Atlanta University. Du Bois was one of the founders of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP in 1909. Earlier, Du Bois had, ridden, had risen to national prominence as the leader of the Niagara Movement, a group of African-American activists that wanted equal rights for Black people. Du Bois and his supporters opposed the Atlanta Compromise, an agreement crafted by Booker T. Washington, which provided that Southern Blacks would work and submit to white political rule, while Southern whites guaranteed that Blacks would receive basic education and economic opportunities. Instead, Du Bois insisted on full civil rights and increased political representation, which he believed would be brought about by by the African-American intellectual elite. He referred to this group as the Talented Ten, a concept under the umbrella of racial uplift, and believed that African-Americans needed the chances for advanced education to develop its leadership. 
Racism was the main target of Du Bois' polemics, and he strongly protested against lynching, Jim Crow laws, and discrimination in education and employment. His cause included people of color everywhere, particularly Africans and Asians in colonies. He was a proponent of Pan-Africanism and helped organize several Pan-African congresses to fight for the independence of African colonies from European powers. Du Bois made several trips to Europe, Africa, and Asia. After World War I, he surveyed the experiences of Black American black soldiers in France and documented widespread prejudice and racism in the United States military. Du Bois was a prolific author. His collection of essays, The Souls of Black Folk, is a seminal work in African-American literature, and his 1935 magnum opus, Black Reconstruction in America, challenged the prevailing orthodoxy that blacks were responsible for the failures of the Reconstruction era. Borrowing a phrase from Frederick Douglass, he popularized the use of the term the color line to represent the injustice of the separate but equal doctrine prevalent in American social and political life. He opens the souls of black folk with the central thesis of much of his life's work. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. If you at all want to get more into black history or to understand different ideologies prevalent in black history, um, W.B. Du Bois is definitely <laughs> a good place to start. I read his uh, work, The Souls of Black Folk, from my Harlem Renaissance class, um, and we read a couple other essays about the differences between his ideas and Booker T. Washington's ideas um, as well. So very, very interesting. But moving on, I briefly mentioned in the Du Bois uh, biography that he led a group to found the NAACP. And this is definitely important and significant in, in Black history. And there's more on that in the history.com article. Um, the next interesting figure that I wanted to talk about in Black history is Marcus Garvey. So born in Jamaica, the Black nationalist leader Marcus Garvey founded his Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, in 1914. Two years later, he brought it to the United States. Garvey appealed to the racial pride of African Americans, exalting blackness as strong and beautiful. As racial prejudice was so ingrained in white civilization, Garvey claimed, it was futile for black people to appeal to white people's sense of justice and democratic principles. Their only hope, according to him, was to flee America and return to Africa to build a country of their own. After an unsuccessful appeal to the League of Nations to settle a colony in Africa and failed negotiations with Liberia, Garvey announced the formation of the Empire of Africa in 1921 with himself as provisional president. Other African-American leaders, notably W.E.B. Du Bois um, of the NAACP, criticized Garvey and his Back to Africa movement. He was openly contemptuous of them in return. There was no denying the movement's appeal, however. Garvey's boast of 6 million followers in 1923 was probably exaggerated, but even his critics um, admitted that the UNIA had some 500,000 members. In 1923, the U.S. government successfully prosecuted and convicted Garvey for mail fraud in connection with selling stock in his Black Star Line shipping company. After serving a two-year jail sentence, Garvey was pardoned by President Calvin Coolidge and immediately deported. He died in London in 1940. So I wanted to include Marcus Garvey in this overview of Black History Basics because he uh, is a bit different than W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker C. Washington and, and the other leaders. He kind of strays away from them in some ways and has um, different ideas. But, you know, he still also had followers and people that agreed with him and people that thought his way of, of solving the issues of racism in America were, were the way to go. So, yeah, I wanted to, to mention him there because I think sometimes in our, in our general education of American history, we only talk about the black historical figures that have um, more palatable ideas might be the best way to say it or less uh, dramatic ideas maybe I don't know and so we miss out on on the range of ideas and opinions and just like thought processes of, of how to deal with with the different problems that are, are present in America and so um, I wanted to add in Marcus Garvey for that range 
So next, I want to briefly mention the Harlem Renaissance, which took place in the 1920s. And we're going to spend, I think, like two episodes on the Harlem Renaissance because I did take a class on this. So this is something I'm more educated on. But basically, from history.com, they describe the Harlem Renaissance as the great migration of Black Americans from the rural South to the urban North, which sparked an African-American cultural renaissance that took its name from the New York City neighborhood of Harlem, but also became a widespread movement in cities throughout the North and West. Also known as the Black Renaissance or the New Negro Movement, the Harlem Renaissance marked the first time that mainstream publishers and critics turned their attention seriously to African-American literature, music, art, and politics. Blues singer Bessie Smith, pianist Jelly Roll Morton, band leader Louis Armstrong, composer Duke Ellington, dancer Josephine Baker, and actor Paul Robeson were among the leading entertainment talents of the Harlem Renaissance, while Paul Lawrence Dunbar, James Weldon Johnson, Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, and Zora Neale Hurston were some of its most eloquent writers. And I was very tempted to include um, a poem or two in this section, but since I'm going to do other episodes on these these writers, I'll just save it, but I really look forward to that, so... (laughs) Um, The next big event in Black history that I wanted to talk about is actually the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. And this is not one that was on the history.com list, but since I went to college in Oklahoma, it was something that I had the opportunity to learn about there. But it was also one of the, the worst instances of racial violence in American history. And so I don't think learning about it should be condensed to only Oklahomans or only people in Tulsa. So um, from Wikipedia, the Tulsa Race Massacre, also known as the Tulsa Race Riot, the Greenwood Massacre, uh, took place on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, when mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It has been called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. The attack carried out on the ground and from private aircraft destroyed more than 35 square blocks in the district, at that time the wealthiest black community in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. More than 800 people were admitted to hospitals, and as many as 6,000 black residents were interned in large facilities, many of them for several days. The Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially recorded 36 dead. A 2001 State Commission examination of events was able to confirm 39 dead, 26 black, and 13 white based on contemporary autopsy reports, death certificates, and other records. The commission gave several estimates ranging from 75 to 300 dead. The massacre began during the Memorial Day weekend after 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a black shoeshiner was accused of assaulting Sarah Page, the 17-year-old white elevator operator of the nearby Drexel building. He was taken into custody. After the arrest, rumors spread through the city that Roland was to be lynched. Upon hearing reports that a mob of hundreds of white men had gathered around the jail where Roland was being kept um, to take him out and to lynch him, a group of 75 black men, some of whom were armed, arrived at the jail to ensure that Roland would not be lynched. The sheriff persuaded the group to leave the jail, assuring them that he had the situation under control. As the group was leaving the premises, complying with the sheriff's request, a member of the mob of white men allegedly attempted to disarm one of the black men. A shot was fired, and then, according to the reports of the sheriff, quote, all hell broke loose. At the end of the firefight, 12 people were killed. As the news of these deaths spread through the city, mob violence exploded. White rioters rampaged through the black neighborhood that night and morning, killing men and burning and looting stores and homes. Around noon on June 1st, the Oklahoma National Guard imposed martial law, effectively ending the massacre. Around 10,000 black people were left homeless, and property damage amounted to more than $1.5 million in real estate and 70... 750000 in personal property, equivalent to $32 million in 2019. Many survivors left Tulsa, while black and white residents who stayed in the city kept silent about the terror, violence, and resulting losses for decades. The massacre was largely omitted from local, state, and national histories. In 1996, 75 years after the massacre, a bipartisan group in the state legislature authorized 
formation of the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa race riot of 1921. The commission's final report, published in 2001, states that the city had conspired with the mob of white citizens against black citizens. It recommended a program of reparations to survivors and their descendants. The state passed legislation to establish scholarships for descendants of survivors, encourage economic development of Greenwood, and support and develop a memorial park to the massacre victims in Tulsa. The park was dedicated in 2010. In 2020, the massacre became part of the Oklahoma school curriculum. The last male survivor of the Tulsa race massacre, R&B and jazz saxophonist Hal Singer, died on August 18th of 2020 at the age of 100. So that's a lot <laughs> to take in. I know I talk a lot about historical tragedies on this podcast, and that's just one of those tragedies that can be really difficult to wrap our minds around how something like this would be would be coordinated and how something like this would even take place. So I I would just advise that you like let yourself sit with this tragedy for a little bit and and just all the things that, that we're talking about this month and and today in this episode give yourself time to to process these things if you've never heard them before and and really understand what's going on here and the the narrative that we're telling. All right, so moving on. This is actually a new day of <laughs> recording. I got through half of my notes um, in that first chunk and my voice hurt and I was tired and just doing my best to take in all of these things, even though I like research them, you know, and <laughs> they're in my notes. Sometimes it, it takes me a second to really take in this information for my for myself as well. So um, I know it's been a lot so far. Going back into our general overview of major events in, in Black history, Black history basics. Um, we're going to start up again, moving on from the, the Tulsa Race Massacre in um, 1921. We've got about 100 years left of history to cover. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, we're going to move to Jackie Robinson, who is a, a baseball player that you've probably heard of. This is uh, from the History.com article that I've been using pretty often throughout this episode. So, by the 1900s, the unwritten color line, barring black players from white teams and professional baseball, was strictly enforced. Jackie Robinson, a sharecropper's son from Georgia, joined the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro American League in 1945 after a stint in the U.S. Army. He caught the attention of Branch Rickey, who then signed Robinson to a Dodgers farm team that same year, and two years later moved him up, making Robinson the first African-American player to play on a major league team. Despite his success in the field, however, he encountered hostility from both fans and other players. Members of the St. Louis Cardinals even threatened to strike if Robinson played. Baseball commissioner Ford Frick settled the question by threatening to suspend any player who went on strike. After Robinson's historic breakthrough, baseball was steadily integrated, with professional basketball and tennis following suit in 1950. His groundbreaking achievement transcended sports, and as soon as he signed the contract with Ricky, Robinson became one of the most visible African Americans in the country, and a figure that Black people could look up to as a source of pride, inspiration, and hope. As his success and fame grew, Robinson began speaking out publicly for Black equality. And that brings us to another major U.S. Supreme Court case. You can even see in the story of Jackie Robinson how the idea of, of separate but equal was still prevalent in the 1950s. But here that is overturned in, in the case Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. So in this case, the U.S. Supreme Court delivered its verdict, ruling unanimously that racial segregation in public schools violated the 14th Amendment's mandate of equal protection of the laws in the U.S. Constitution to any person within its jurisdiction. Oliver Brown, the lead plaintiff in the case, was one of almost 200 people from five different states who had joined related 
NAACP cases brought before the Supreme Court since 1938. The landmark verdict reversed the separate but equal doctrine the court had established with Plessy versus Ferguson, in which it determined that equal protection was not violated as long as reasonably equal conditions were provided to both groups. In the Brown decision, Chief Justice Earl Warren famously declared that, quote, separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Though the court's ruling applied specifically to public schools, it implied that other segregated facilities were also unconstitutional, thus striking a heavy blow to the Jim Crow South. As such, the ruling provoked serious resistance, including a Southern manifesto issued by Southern congressmen denouncing it. The decision was also difficult to enforce, a fact that became increasingly clear in May 1955. But before we get to May of 1955, I want to talk about a major event that happened in August of 1955 that I think has been referenced more in the context of the um, Black Lives Matter protests this past summer and in other current events. So in August of 1955, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago named Emmett Till had recently arrived in Money, Mississippi to visit relatives. While in a grocery store, he allegedly whistled or made a remark to the white woman behind the counter, violating the strict racial codes of the Jim Crow South. Three days later, two white men, the woman's husband, Roy Bryant, and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, dragged Till from his great-uncle's house in the middle of the night. After beating the boy, they shot him to death and threw his body in the Tallahatchie River. The two men confessed to kidnapping Till, but were acquitted of murder charges by an all-white, all-male jury after barely an hour of deliberations. Never brought to justice, Bryant and Millam later shared vivid details of how they killed Till with a journalist for Look magazine, which published their confessions under the headline, The Shocking Story of Approved Killing in Mississippi. Till's mother had an open casket funeral for her son in Chicago, hoping to bring public attention to the brutal murder. Thousands of mourners attended, and Jet magazine published a photo of the corpse. International outrage over the crime and the verdict helped fuel the civil rights movement. Just three months after Emmett Till's body was found, and a month after the Mississippi grand jury refused to charge Millam and Bryant with kidnapping, a citywide bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, would begin the movement in earnest. So I think the way I wanted to, to connect this to current events, the way that I saw it connecting to current events, was with some of the some of the more publicized um, murders that were were brought to our attention um, in 2020. Younger, young black men who were shot by the police, saw a lot of people on social media and elsewhere talking about Emmett Till um, and the the horror he went through and then just the the bravery of his mother to hold an, an open casket funeral um, for her son to take this private moment of, of grief and make it public um, in the hopes that other mothers wouldn't have to suffer as as she did. I think that's I don't know. That's something that has sat with me since since reading this and, and researching this. This event, these people in particular, have have been on my mind a lot. Just the the kinds of things that the kinds of things that that Black Americans have had to face through throughout our history. Um, one of them being that even private moments of mourning can't be entirely private in some ways. Um, and I think about that with like the deaths of like Breonna Taylor and Elijah McLean, um, and how. The fact that I even know those names and the fact that you probably know who I'm talking about means their families didn't get opportunities either to to grieve and process this in private. They were immediately put on the on the pu- public stage. And I know in the in the case of Breonna Taylor, too, that, that she did not receive justice, um, similar to Emmett Till, the, the cops who shot her did not receive quite the, the charges that they should have. So anyway, I think these connections are, are some of the important parts of looking at history to, to better understand it because then we can start to see connections and see what has changed and what hasn't. 
So moving on and, and more talking about pursuing change, um, our next important person that I wanted to talk about is Rosa Parks, who is, is well known for her actions in December of 1955 um, when she was riding a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama. She was told to give up her seat to a white man, but she refused um, and was arrested for violating the city's racial segregation ordinances, which mandated that black passengers sit in the back of public buses and give up their seats for white riders if the front seats were full. Rosa Parks was also the secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAA. ACP. And she later explained, quote, I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed. I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and as a citizen. So the next important people in Black history that I wanted to focus on are called the, the Little Rock Nine. So in 1957, although the Supreme Court had declared the segregation of public schools illegal in the case Brown versus Board of Education, the decision was extremely difficult to enforce as 11 Southern states enacted resolutions interfering with, nullifying, or protesting school desegregation. In Arkansas, uh, Governor Faubus, I think is how you say his name, made resistance to desegregation a central part of his successful 1956 re-election campaign. The following September, after a federal court ordered the desegregation of Central High School, located the state capital of Little Rock, Faubus called out the Arkansas National Guard to prevent nine African-American students from entering the school. He was later forced to call off the guard, and in an intense standoff that followed, TV cameras captured footage of white mobs converging on the Little Rock Nine outside the high school. For millions of viewers throughout the country, the unforgettable images provided a vivid contrast between the angry forces of white supremacy and the quiet, dignified resistance of the African-American students. After an appeal by the local congressman and mayor of Little Rock to stop the violence, President Dwight D. Eisenhower federalized the state's National Guard and sent 1,000 members of the U.S. Army to enforce the integration of Central High School. The nine black students entered the school under heavily armed guard, marking the first time since Reconstruction that federal troops had provided protection for black Americans against racial violence. Not done fighting, Faubus closed all of Little Rock's high schools in the fall of 1958, rather than permit integration. A federal court struck down this act, and four of the nine students returned under police protection after the schools opened in 1959. So one thing I think about when um, looking over this this historical event is like, these are children. <laughs> I just feel like it must have been hard for their parents to to let them do this. Like, obviously, desegregation was super important. And these kids played a powerful part in, in making that happen and undoing the deeply dug roots of white supremacy in Arkansas. But as a parent, like, I feel like it would be hard to have your kids be the one that are, are fighting against white supremacy. You know, like kids should be protected from stuff like that. And kids shouldn't have to, to deal with the, the harsh realities of the world. You know, they should just be allowed to, to go to school <laughs> and learn things and um, grow up and have a happy childhood. But um, because of the structures of our, of our country in, in the 1950s, these, these kids were not allowed that opportunity and had to go through this probably quite traumatic experience of having mobs of white people yelling at them when they're just trying to go to school, having to be escorted into school by, by the U.S. Army because of the fear of, of racial violence and how hard for their parents, too, to, to see all of this, this playing out and, and know that their kids are playing an important part in history, but still, like, man, that's just a lot. That's just a lot. And I think sometimes, from our from our perspective in, in 2020, we look at things in segregation, look at things like segregation. And we're like, obviously, that is ridiculous. That's insane. That's horrible. Like, how could people treat people that way? Um, how could that ever be something that was seen as acceptable, much less something that people fought for? And yet it was. And so I think that's important to 
to think about and really let our let our brains marinate on. And that brings us to Martin Luther King Jr. and I think gives us better context for what work he was doing and the the situations around it, the reactions to it. So uh, the major event, obviously, that uh, we always focus on for Martin Luther King Jr. is his I Have a Dream speech. So on August 28th, 1963, some 250,000 people, both black and white, participated in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, the largest demonstration in the history of the nation's capital and the most significant display of the civil rights movement's growing strength. After marching from the Washington Monument, the demonstrators gathered near the Lincoln Memorial, where a number of civil rights leaders addressed the crowd, calling for voting rights, equal employment opportunities for black Americans, and an end to racial segregation. The last leader to appear was the Baptist preacher Martin Luther King Jr. of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, who spoke eloquently of the struggle facing black Americans and the need for continued action and nonviolent resistance. And then I included here the quote uh, that I feel like has been misused in in (laughs) our, our recent current events, but it is still a powerful quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So I also wanted to include, along with Martin Luther King Jr., lots of people will bring in um, another civil rights leader, Malcolm X. And I have a lot of notes on him, but I feel like this episode has been really, really long. But I have a a link to a biography site about Malcolm X in my description if you want to read more of what I was going to focus on. But I think, again, like I was kind of including with with Marcus Garvey, I think it's important to understand the variety of ideas and strategies in um, Black leadership throughout Black history, both in civil rights and just other things when we're talking about like Black art or poetry and literature. We'll talk about this like with the Harlem Renaissance. We see different ideas and styles and emotions and motivations with this experience of, of black literature or black art, black ideas, just because we're, we're categorizing it in this way does not mean that the history of black Americans is like a singular monolithic experience. There's a lot of diversity within this category. And I think studying Malcolm X alongside um, Martin Luther King Jr. Is, is very interesting to do so. Um, like while Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist preacher, Malcolm X was Muslim and he was he was very articulate and eloquent as well and had a large following. Some of his ideas were inspiring for the Black Power, a Black Panther movement um, that was in the, the later 60s and 70s. So he's definitely super influential in that. He wrote an autobiography, which I think, honestly, I saw that at like Barnes & Nobles when I was there last week. So <laughs> if you're interested in that, I've heard from from others that his, his autobiography is, is very well written and, and very interesting. So what I personally find most interesting about Malcolm X is his decision to change his last name from Little to X. We talked about this in like a, a post-colonial literature class that I took in college, but Malcolm X considered his original last name to be um, a slave name and, and one that was given to him because of who his ancestors had been enslaved by, um, which is which is usually how how that happened. Um, enslaved people were given the last names of the people who owned them. And so Malcolm X decided to change his last name to X to signify his lost um, tribal name, to, to signify his like lost heritage that was stolen from him by um, the people who enslaved his ancestors. And so I think that's very interesting, that kind of like way of, of reclaiming his identity and his heritage um, and kind of rejecting the history that had the history that he has of his family and instead reaching out for that history that he doesn't know um, that was taken from him because of the institution of slavery. So I think that's super interesting. Obviously, Malcolm X uh, was active in the 1950s and whatnot. And so he personally was not enslaved and he's more removed from the institution of slavery. But I, I think it's really interesting how he interacts with that history um, and responds to it. So um, there's definitely more about Malcolm X um, in that link of, I think it's like his biography or something. I don't remember what the link is called, but it's in my description. So you can definitely look at that there. 
the next major event that I wanted to talk about was the bombing of the Birmingham church in 1963. So from history.com, despite Martin Luther King Jr.'s inspiring words at the Lincoln Memorial during the March on Washington, violence against black people and the segregated South continued to indicate the strength of white resistance to the ideals of justice and harmony King espoused. In mid-September, white supremacists bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama during Sunday services. Four young African-American girls were killed in the explosion. The church bombing was the third in 11 days after the federal government had ordered the integration of Alabama's school system. Governor George Wallace was a leading foe of desegregation, and Birmingham had been one of the strongest and most violent chapters of the KKK. Birmingham had become a leading focus in the civil rights movement in the spring of 1963, while Martin Luther King was arrested there while leading supporters of his Southern Christian Leadership Conference in a nonviolent campaign of demonstrations against segregation. While in jail, King wrote a letter to the local white ministers justifying his decision not to call off the demonstrations in the face of continued bloodshed at the hands of local law enforcement officials, led by Birmingham's police commissioner, Eugene Bull Connor. Letter from a Birmingham jail was published in the national press even as images of police brutality against protesters in Birmingham, including children being attacked by police dogs and knocked off their feet by fire hoses, sent shockwaves around the world, helping to build crucial support for the civil rights movement. And moving on to our next event for the sake of time, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is definitely um, a major event that we need to discuss. So in, in 1960, JFK made a passage of new civil rights legislation part of his presidential campaign platform. He won more than 70% of the African-American vote. Congress was debating Kennedy's civil rights reform bill when he was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, November 1963. So then it was left to Lyndon B. Johnson, who was not previously known for his support of civil rights, to push the Civil Rights Act, the most far-reaching act of legislation supporting racial equality in American history, through Congress in June of 1964, which he did. Um, and then we have a, another march in 1965. So in early 1965, Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference made Selma, Alabama, the focus of its efforts to register black voters in the South. Alabama's governor, George Wallace, again, was a notorious opponent of desegregation, and the local county sheriff had led steadfast opposition to black voter registration drives. Only 2% of Selma's eligible black voters had managed to register. In February, an Alabama state trooper shot a young African-American demonstrator in nearby Marion, and the SCLC announced a massive protest march from Selma to the state capitol in Montgomery. On March 7th, 600 marchers got as far as the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside Selma when they were attacked by state troopers wielding whips, nightsticks, and tear gas. The brutal scene was captured on television, enraging many Americans and drawing civil rights and religious leaders of all faiths to Selma in protest. King himself led another attempt on March 9th, but turned the marchers around when state troopers again blocked the road. That night, a group of segregationists fatally beat a protester, the young white minister James Reeb. On March 21st, after a U.S. District Court ordered Alabama to permit the Selma... Montgomery March, some 2,000 marchers set out on the three-day journey, this time protected by the U.S. Army troops and the Alabama National Guard forces under federal control. No tide of racism can stop us, King proclaimed from the steps of the Capitol building, addressing nearly 50,000 supporters who met the marchers in Montgomery. And then um, in 1965, Malcolm X was shot. So History.com, we talked about Malcolm X a little bit already, but History.com described him as someone who challenged the mainstream civil rights movement and the nonviolent pursuit of integration championed by Martin Luther King Jr. And instead, he urged his followers to defend themselves against white aggression by, quote, any means necessary. And then on um, February 21st in 1965, during a speaking engagement in Harlem, three people rushed the stage while Malcolm X was speaking and shot him 15 times at close range. After his death, the best-selling book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, popularized his ideas, uh, particularly among Black youth, and laid the foundation for the Black Power movement in the 60s and 70s. The next um, major legislation that we wanted to talk about, following kind of now um, Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, career as president, after the Selma to Montgomery marchers were beaten and, and struggling, 
and Alabama, President Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress calling for federal legislation to ensure protection of the voting rights of African Americans. The result was the Voting Rights Act, which Congress passed in August 1965. The Voting Rights Act sought to overcome the legal barriers that still existed at the state and local level, preventing black citizens from exercising the right to vote given to them by the 15th Amendment. Specifically, it banned literacy tests as a requirement for voting, mandated federal oversight of voter registration in areas where tests had previously been used, and gave the U.S. Attorney general the duty of challenging the use of poll taxes for state and local elections. So um, moving into the the 60s and early 70s, we see the rise of Black Power and the Black Panther movements. So after the rush of the civil rights movement's first years, anger and frustration was increasing among many African Americans who saw clearly that true equality, social, economic, and political, still eluded them. In the late 60s and early 70s, this frustration fueled the rise of the Black Power movement. According to Stokely Carmichael, who first popularized the term black power in 1966, the traditional civil rights movement and its emphasis on nonviolence did not go far enough, and the federal legislation it had achieved failed to address the economic and social disadvantages facing black Americans. Black power was both a form of self-definition and self-defense for African Americans. It called on them to stop looking to the institutions of white America, which were believed to be inherently racist, and act for themselves, by themselves, to seize the gains they desired, including better jobs, housing, and education. Also in 1966, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, college students in Oakland, California, founded the Black Panther Party. While its original mission was to protect black people from white brutality by sending patrol groups into black neighborhoods, the Panthers soon developed into a Marxist group that promoted black power by urging African Americans to arm themselves and demand full employment, decent housing, and control over their own communities. Clashes ensued between the Panthers and the police in California, New York, and Chicago, and in 1967, Newton was convicted of voluntary manslaughter after killing a police officer. His trial brought national attention to the organization, which at its peak in the late 1960s boasted some 2,000 members. So I think this is particularly interesting, obviously, um, in terms of (laughs) – maybe not obviously, but – you know, when I hear Black Panther, I don't necessarily think of the Black Power movement. I think of the superhero. <laughs> I think of the Avenger Black Panther. Um, and so I think when we start looking at that movie in particular a little bit more uh, under the lens of Black history and the the struggle of Black Americans for rights, the history of colonization, African history in general, not a, a monolithic continent, but a, a continent full of diversity and, and different nations and languages and, and people and histories. I think Black Panther as a, as a movie becomes much more interesting and much more um, rich, um, richer than it, than it already is. One of my favorites, honestly, as far as Avengers movies go. Let's keep going because we are still not in the 2000s and this podcast episode is going to be so long. I really should have done this in two episodes, but I, there were so many other things I wanted to go through in more depth. So, And I do think we get a lot out of seeing these things as a, as a narrative. We start to see patterns and a kind of arc when we look at Black history in America kind of all at once. And I think that gives us a, a good like big perspective before we zoom in on some of these things more specifically. Okay, so the next legislation that we need to talk about is the Fair Housing Act of 1968. It was meant to be a follow-up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and it was the last great legislative achievement of the civil rights era. It was originally intended to extend federal protection to civil rights workers and then was later expanded to address racial discrimination in the sale, rental, or financing of housing units. After the bill passed um, through the Senate by an exceedingly narrow margin in early April, it was thought that the increasingly conservative House of Representatives, wary of the growing strength and militancy of the Black Power movement, would weaken it considerably. On the day of the Senate vote, however, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. Pressure to pass the bill increased amid the wave of national remorse that followed, and after a strictly limited debate, the House passed the Fair Housing Act on April 10th. 
President Johnson signed it into law the following day. Over the next few years, however, there was little decrease in housing segregation and violence arose from black efforts to seek housing in white neighborhoods. And, of course, on April 4th, 1968, the world was stunned and saddened by the news that the civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot and killed on the balcony of a motel in Memphis, Tennessee, where he had gone to support a sanitation worker's strike. King's death opened a huge rift between white and black Americans, as many black people saw the killing as a rejection of their vigorous pursuit of equality through nonviolent resistance that he had championed. In more than 100 cities, several days of riots, burning, and looting followed his death. The accused killer, a white man named James Earl Ray, was captured and tried immediately. He entered a guilty plea and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. No testimony was heard. Ray later recanted his confession, and despite several inquiries into the matter by the U.S. government, many continued to believe that the speedy trial had been a cover-up for a larger conspiracy. King's assassination, along with the killing of Malcolm X three years earlier, radicalized many moderate African-American activists, fueling the growth of the Black Power movement and the Black Panther Party. The success of conservative politicians that year, including Richard Nixon's election as president and the third-party candidacy of the ardent segregationist George Wallace, who won 13% of the vote, further discouraged African-Americans, many who felt the tide was turning against the civil rights movement. So that kind of brings us to, obviously, the end of the, the civil rights movement um, when we talk about that in a historical narrative sense that's that's mostly in the 60s. And so that does not mean, of course, that black history ends in the 60s. Um, there were lots of things happening in the past 60 years or so. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into as much detail about um, these last two things, but stuff that I have in my notes here is Shirley Chisholm run, ran for president in um, 1972, um, marking the, the rise of the civil rights movement combining with the feminist movement to create an African-American women's movement, which is, is very interesting. So Chisholm became the first black woman in Congress in 1968 when she was elected to the House from her Brooklyn district. I thought that was very interesting and notable. Of course, when we talk about black history, we have to kind of deal with some level of intersectionality because historically, even when we would focus on black history, we would focus only on black men. And so it's important to to bring in women into this picture as well, because that's a, another area of history that we we don't always emphasize in our in our general education being women's history. Another figure in, in black history that I have in my notes is Jesse Jackson, who had stayed alongside um, Martin Luther King Jr. during his activism and, and was actually in Memphis with him when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So Jackson founded People United to, to Save Humanity, which was later changed to People United to Serve Humanity, um, an organization that advocated self-reliance for African Americans and sought to establish racial parity in the business and financial community. He was a leading voice for Black Americans during the early 1980s. He urged them to be more politically active. The following year, Jackson ran for the Democratic nomination for president and ended up placing third in the primaries, propelled by a surge of black voter participation. And so we're skipping a few a few years here, but um, moving forward to 2008, we have the first black president of the United States, um, Barack Obama, who was inaugurated as the 44th president in 2008. And even like, okay, so now we're at a point where probably most people listening to this podcast <laughs> were alive. I was a child at this time, but so I didn't really understand that this was a big deal. But I think when if you've listened this far in this episode, um, you think of of where we started however many minutes ago and and how long it took to get to this point, having a, a Black American in the, in the highest office in this country. Um, it, it feels different, right, than maybe when you were focusing on everything that was happening in the early 2000s, maybe in your history class or um, living through it yourself. I think we have a different a different perspective here. And then the the last three events... I have on my notes here, catch us up to present day. So in 2013, the Black Lives Matter movement 
um, was born. Uh, the term Black Lives Matter was first used by organizer Alicia Garza in July of 2013 in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman, a Florida man who shot and killed unarmed 17-year-old Trayvon Martin on February 26, 2012. Later in 2013, Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi formed the Black Lives Matter Network with the mission to, quote, eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. And then um, in May of 2020, as I'm sure you remember, the Black Lives Matter movement swelled to a critical juncture in the midst of, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic when 46-year-old George Floyd died after being handcuffed and pinned to the ground by police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin was filmed kneeling on Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes. Floyd had been accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill at a local deli in Minneapolis. All four officers involved in the incident were fired, and Chauvin was charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. The three officers were charged with aiding and abetting murder. Floyd's killing came on the heels of two other high-profile cases in 2020. On February 23rd, 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery was killed while out on a run after being followed by three white men in a pickup truck. And on March 13th, 26-year-old EMT Breonna Taylor was shot eight times and killed while she was sleeping after police broke down the door to her apartment while executing a nighttime warrant. On May 26, 2020, the day after Floyd's shooting, protesters in Minneapolis took to the streets to protest Floyd's killing. After months of quarantine and isolation during a global pandemic, protests mounted, spreading across the country in the following days and weeks. And then, um, just a few weeks ago, our, our last major event in, in Black history, Kamala Harris became the first woman and first Black U.S. Vice President. Hopefully, these events seemed at least somewhat familiar to you. Definitely, the last few minutes should have been things that you've lived through and so things that you've seen. But I think it looks different when we hold it in the, in the larger perspective of Black history in America. When we focus on that narrative and we focus on that category of history, I think things look a little differently. Um, so I look forward to spending more time on, on some of these things and looking at some of these things in, in more detail. I will have all the links to all my sources and suggestions um, for what to read if you want more information on more of these things. Um, obviously, this is a lot, and I did not go into any of these things with nearly as much detail or introspection as I wanted to, but um, I can't talk forever. <laughs> so these Black History Basics that I provided are by no means extensive, and there's so much more that we can talk about here. And, you know, I look forward to, to continuing to talk about it with you. So that's all I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for sleuthing with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The featured Black History pod of this episode is a podcast I've already mentioned called It's a Continent. Definitely check them out to learn more about the uniqueness of all the different nations in Africa. I will put a link to this podcast in my description as well as the other sources I used for this episode. So, all right, I will catch you guys on Tuesday and we'll talk more about the transatlantic slave trade and the specter of American slavery. Don't forget to follow History Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it and write and review when you can. I hope you have a great day. Bye.